I'm going to begin by reading some passages of Scripture. I like to do that because if I read God's Word, then I know it's going to be a good day, right? Um, my words could be messed up, and, and uh, God's Word is living, God's Word is active, and God's Word always accomplishes the things that He wants it to accomplish. Uh, the first passage is in Matthew chapter 16. Uh, Jesus is with the twelve. Uh, Twelve men who had heard him speak, who had witnessed his miracles, and had seen truth and grace flow from him like a mighty mountain stream. And now Jesus wants to be sure that his guys know exactly who he is. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and so others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And the next passage is from John chapter 13, Jesus, he's in the upper room. He just washed the disciples' feet. He just told them, hey, one of you will abandon and betray me. And John writes these words, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And next is John chapter 17, beginning in verse 20. Jesus is on his, in, in the garden praying and he he prays these words. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, that all of them be, may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that, the world, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And the final passage is Acts chapter 2. It's the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has fallen. The gospel has been preached for the very first time. And 3,000 people responded the biblical way by repenting and being baptized. And their sins were forgiven. And they were giving the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the church, the promised Messianic kingdom was born. And Luke records these words. All the believers worked together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added daily to their number those who were being saved. May God bless the reading of his word. Father God, thank you for this opportunity to be in your house. Thank you for your mercy and your grace that are new every morning. And Father, I pray that as we, we study together today, uh, that what happens in this room today will impact our relationships with one another in ways that the watching world will, will take notice of. In Jesus' name, amen. And here's the way I, I want to attack our, our passage this morning. Uh, I want to unpack three statements, a bold prediction, a desperate prayer, and the primary activity. And before we do this, I, I, I want us to take a moment to pray and, and, 
I want you to pray for you, and I'm going to pray for me, and pray that in the next few weeks as we talk about one another doing church together, that God will move in you and help you become a catalyst to help Maple Grove become the kind of community and family that God wants her to be. And so we're going to just take a brief moment. You're going to pray that your, your heart, mind, and your eyes and ears, heart and mind, oh my goodness, man, I'm, I am really on cold medicine, okay? Uh, I want you to pray that your heart and mind will be open to what God has to teach you so that you will be a catalyst. My wife's nodding her head like, oh my goodness, he's crashing and burning big time. Uh, let's pray. <laughs> I think you get what I'm trying to say. Lord, hear our prayer. Amen. A bold prediction. Picture the scene. Jesus is with the 12. Uh, They've been together for about two years. And they're walking on a dry, dusty, hot, barren road in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Along the way, Jesus turns to them and he says, who do people say that I am? And they start throwing out guesses. Some say John the Baptist and other one of the prophets is Elijah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Micah, Hosea, Elisha. And then Jesus asked him, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of living God. And Jesus stops and says, you nailed it, Peter. And that's exactly right. But you didn't come up with that on your own. That father revealed that to you. And on this rock, on this statement, on this truth about who I am, that I am the Christ, the Messiah, the son of living God, the great I am, on this truth, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And then they began walking again, and Matthew's off to the side, and he is taking it all in, and he's like, hey guys, do you think that was important? Yeah, me too. And he, he says, I think I'm going to write that down. Understand, Jesus is making a very bold prediction. He says, I, I'm going to build this thing called the church, and, and when I do, nothing is going to be able to stop it. Yes, this church will grow, it, it will flourish, it will expand, and it will keep pressing forward to every corner of the world. And though many things will come against it, false religions, human philosophies, wicked governments, immoral cultures, and even the gates of hell, they all will fall, and my church will endure always. And so here we are 2,000 years later, right? I understand, as you and I sit in this room on November the 7th, 2021, we are a fulfillment of that prediction that Jesus made on the road to Caesarea Philippi. Amen? That's pretty cool. On this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Question, when Matthew writes down that word for church, do you know what word he uses in Greek? Anybody remember? You probably heard this. Probably had a Sunday school class one time called this, all right? Ekklesia. Ekklesia. It's a, it's a compound word, ek meaning out, klesia meaning called ones. So ekklesia means those called out from and those called into. And ecclesia is a group of people who have been called out from the world, called out from living their own way, and called into being a gathering or a congregation of God's people, a Jesus following. However, as time went by, the word ecclesia, which means a gathering or congregation, it didn't get translated in, in our English Bible. Instead, a German word was used instead, a, a German word 
for where we get the word church, which actually means the Lord's house. So ecclesia, a gathering of God's people, didn't get translated. It got replaced with a German word that means the Lord's house, holy site, gathering place. But listen, the thing is, Jesus in Matthew 16 was not predicting the Lord's house. Jesus wasn't predicting a place. Jesus was predicting a a people. He says, I am going to build my, my people. Jesus says there's going to be a Jesus gathering and ecclesia, a gathering of his people, and that nothing would be able to stop it. His death would not be able to stop it. Their death would not be able to stop it. And even the gates of hell would not be able to stop it. Now, what's interesting is that when William Tyndale in the 16th century translated the first Bible from Greek into English, well, when he got to Matthew 16, the first time the word ecclesia is used in the Bible, He's like, uh-oh, that, that doesn't mean house of the Lord. That, that doesn't mean gathering place. That doesn't mean holy site. Again, the word church means something entirely different than what Matthew said and what Jesus predicted, right? Jesus did not predict a place. He predicted a people, right? And it has nothing to do with the location, nothing to do with geography. And so the very first English Bible, the word church does not appear anywhere because every time Tyndale got to the word ecclesia, he wrote, a congregation or a gathering. I'm going to build my congregation. I'm going to build this gathering and the gates of hell cannot stand up against it. But some people weren't very happy with that, that he removed the word church from the Bible because it threatened their power. So they arrested him. They destroyed his Bible. They choked him to death and then they burned his body. And it's been church ever since. And what a tragedy, right? I'm not saying that we need to go on a campaign to remove the word church from our Bibles. That would be a waste of time. But but what I'm wanting each of us to understand as we sit in this room today is that Jesus didn't predict a place. He predicted a people. He predicted a gathering of people called out from the world and called into a new family, called into a new way of living, a way of living that would be absolutely unstoppable. And though at times our own vocabulary kind of betrays us, right? We say, you know, I'm going to go to church. I went to church. I don't like that church, right? Right? Uh, Or we even say this sometimes, you know. Understand, when we say that I don't like that church, you know what we're saying? I don't like those people, right? When when we say, I'm leaving that church, I'm leaving those people, right? It's easier to say, right, I don't like that church, that say, hey, I, I don't like those people, right? But again, it's not about a building. It's not about a one-hour meeting on Sundays. It's about a gathering of God's people. Jesus said, I will build my church. I will build this gathering of people, and the gates of hell will not be able to stand against it. The next point in your notes is a desperate prayer. Picture the scene. Jesus is in the garden. Praying passionately and desperately. So much so that he's literally sweating drops of blood. That's a very rare medical condition. You see the sweat glands are surrounded by tiny blood vessels that can, that can contract and dilate under, and eventually sometimes even rupture. And when they rupture, they invade the sweat glands and they come out as you're sweating. So Jesus is praying and he's praying in such anguish that he's sweating drops of blood. And he prayed for three things. First, he prayed for himself. 
at what was about to happen. See, what was about to happen was a a really big deal. It was the fulfillment of what God promised in Genesis chapter 3 after Adam and Eve sinned by biting the forbidden fruit. A promise that one day he would send or deliver to crush the head of Satan, pay the debt for sin, remove the barrier that separated God from his people. And for that to happen, Jesus would have to die, not only die a cruel and brutal death, but he would have to be viewed by God as sin. And for a time, God would have to turn his back on him. And, and for all, since all time, God, Jesus would, and the Father would be separated. No wonder Jesus prayed with such de- desperation. And then he prayed for his guys. He loved them. He cared about them. And they were not just his disciples. They were not just his friends. They, they were the, the hope of the world. And they've been given an incredibly important mission, a mission to continue his work, a mission as important as the cross and the resurrection, a mission to sh- spread the good news of salvation. So Jesus prays for them. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. And finally, Jesus, pray sweating drops of blood for us in this room today. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity, then... Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. What was Jesus' prayer for this gathering, for for this church? That we will be one just as he and the Father are one. And that we would be brought to what? Complete unity. So the world would know that Jesus, that this Jesus stuff is true and that it is for real. And as a result, they would find hope, salvation, and life in him. Then, then, when his people are one, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. In Matthew 16, Jesus makes a very bold prediction about building an ecclesia, a gathering of people that would be unstoppable and that would grow, flourish, and expand throughout this planet, bringing salvation to those who are lost because of their sins. This is why Jesus came. This is why he gave his life on the cross. This is the most important thing. Therefore, moments before his arrest, Jesus prays a desperate prayer. Because he knows that this bold prediction hinges on this one thing. Like it hinges on one thing. Like he died, he was beaten, he was spit upon, he was stripped naked. And this hinges on one thing, that this Jesus gathering would be one, that his people would be brought to complete unity. In their book, One Another, Transformational Relationships in the Body of Christ, the authors write this, if we have any interest in being faithful to God and in being a serious disciple of Jesus in this world, the nature of our relationships with other Christians must be of primary concern. As the kingdom breaks into our present age and God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, there will be a remarkable difference in kingdom relationships. And seeing to this must be a passion of disciples. 
If we have any interest in being faithful to God and being a serious disciple of Jesus Christ in this world, the nature of our relationship with other Christians must be a primary concern. As the kingdom breaks into our present age and God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, there will be a remarkable difference in kingdom relationships. And seeing to this must be a passion of disciples. Amen. You see, this Jesus gathering is to present to this world a picture of relationships that is remarkably different than what they see in the world. A picture that when they see it, people want to be a part of it. Check out a snapshot of that picture in Acts chapter 4. Like, man, I want to be a part of something like this. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was their own. Got any possessions? <laughs> Whose are they? Right? They're like, hey, that's not, that's not just my house. That's not my boat. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And, the, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, all that they, in them, all that they were, so that there are no needing persons among them. For from time to time, those who had owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. I mean, who would, wouldn't want to be a part of something like that, right? Where it's like, hey, you know what? I got stuff, but you need stuff. I'll sell my stuff to help you out because you don't have anything. You see, this church, these people loved each other in radical kind of ways. They took off their masks and shared their lives with one another. They laughed and cried and prayed and sang and served together in authentic Christian fellowship. Those that had more shared with those who had less until socioeconomic barriers melted away. People related to one another in ways that bridge cultural and gender chasms. Acts 2 tells us that this community of believers offered unbelievers a vision of life that was so powerful, so beautiful, so bold, so creative, so courageous, so dynamic that they could not resist. And Acts 2, 47 says, the Lord added to the number daily those who were being saved. This church, these people were an unstoppable force that transformed their world one life at a time. You see, the way the early church loved each other was a powerful statement to the watching world. In fact, we see this impact as Christianity began to expand throughout the Roman Empire, reaching some of the major cities like Rome and Carthage in the second century. And at the time, a lot of people were suspicious of Christians. They didn't like Christians because they, they were no longer doing the stuff they used to do when they lived a pagan lifestyle. And there were rumors circulating about what actually happened among the meetings of Christians when they gathered together. And, and a church leader in Carthage named Tertullian he wrote a brief explanation of, 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 and a critique against these unjust rumors and accusations placed on the Christians. And he wrote at one point that these attacks against Christianity were made out of jealousy uh, because Christians displayed a character of life that their pagan neighbors did not possess. And here's some of what, is what he wrote, second century. It is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that led many to put a brand upon us. See how they love one another, they say, for they themselves are animated by mutual hatred. How they're ready even to die for one another, they say, for they themselves will sooner be put to death. 
And you see what he's saying? He says that, that, that the Romans may not have liked them, it may not have agreed with them, but they said, man, do you see how they love one another? They're even willing to, to die for one another. You know, and they're saying, hey, they're jealous of us. The world looks at us and they see our relationship. The reason they're hating on us, the reason they're angry at us, the reason they slander us is because they're jealous of the kind of relationships they see that we have. Wouldn't that be a great reason for the world to hate us, right? Because they're jealous? Because, man, look at the relationship that they have. Look at the way that they, they treat one another. And listen, this oneness, this newness, is exactly what the prophet Isaiah talked about 700 years before Christ put on flesh and invaded the planet. See, Isaiah looked forward to the day and saw it coming. He saw a coming kingdom when disputes would be settled and where people would beat their swords and the farming equipment. Swords, tools of division, into farming equipment, tools of peace. And he saw in the coming kingdom that there would be this seemingly impossible unity between the wolf and the lamb, the leopard and the goat, the calf and the lion, all being led by a little child. In the coming kingdom, Isaiah says in Isaiah 32, 2, that men would protect each other and would be for one another like a shelter from the wind. You see, the church is called to embody and imitate, the church is called to embody and imitate the relational life of Jesus. Okay, here's the deal. Man's sin, and it caused separation between man and God. But because God so loved the world and did not want anyone to perish, he gave his one, only one son to die in man's place. Jesus put on flesh, fulfilled his mission through his death and resurrection. And before he returns to the Father, he commissions his disciples to continue the work. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And listen, whenever we really pause to think about it, we realize that this commission, hey, you 11 guys, you 11 guys who were afraid and ran away, you 11 guys who have very little money, very little resources, very little education, very little power, you 11 guys are going to make disciples of all nations, right? <laughs> That's like a Herculean task, amen? And yet surprisingly, hear me, the church's success in this endeavor depends on only one thing, not on great wealth, not on political power, not on sophisticated technology, not on superior organization, not on great preaching, not on public rallies, not on big buildings, not on creative programs, not on massive budgets or even signs and wonders, but rather on the mutual love expressed and lived out among this community of faith. Understand, it's the quality of our relationships that makes a church an effective witness for the gospel. Because it creates the kind of community that the world wants to be a part of. It's our, it's our greatest weapon. It's our greatest apologetic. A bold prediction. I will build my church. A desperate prayer. Father, make them one. Bring them complete unity. Because that's the only way the world's going to know that they really are my disciples. Which brings us to the primary activity. Which brings us to what you and I need to do in order to help answer Jesus' desperate prayer. And fulfill his bold prediction. 
Now understand, once you get past the Gospels, you see that the primary activity of the church is to one another, one another. You see, one anothering is the key. Someone say one anothering. One anothering is the essential ingredient to show the world that we are as disciples. Now the phrase one another occurs over 100 times in the Bible. 59 of those times is talking about the relationship that we should have with each other. And here's the deal. Accepting them, embracing them, and living them out are essential for us accomplishing the mission and becoming one, just as the Father are one. In the next few weeks, we'll be digging into these deeper, but here are some uh, how not to one another one another. Have another. Do not lie to one another. Colossians 3, 9. Romans 14, 13. Stop passing judgment on one another. Galatians 5, 15. Stop biting and devouring one another or you'll be destroyed by one another. Galatians 5, 26. Let us not become conceited or provoke one another, poke one another, or be jealous of one another. James 4, 11, Do not slander one another. James 5, 19. Do not grumble against one another. You see, these six things are not only sins. They are relationship-destroying, body-of-Christ-hindering, bride-of-Christ-tainting behaviors and actions that have no place in any Jesus gathering. Get it? Amen. Good. (laughs) I mean, who here thinks that our gatherings would be much better without them and more appealing to the watching world? Like, that's how people in the world do relationships, right? Right? Uh, They lie to each other, they judge each other, they bite and devour each other, they poke each other, they provoke each other, they grumble against each other, and they slander each other. See, slander is talking negatively about somebody else behind their back, right? That's what it is, right? And and Christians sometimes fall victim to this, right? We have a concern. We have a prayer need, right? You know? Do not talk, when you talk negatively about someone to someone else behind their back, you are sinning. It is a sin, and you need to stop it, and you don't need to listen to it, because if you listen to it, guess what? You're sinning too, because you're listening to that garbage, right? Okay? And, and we all can fall victim to it, right? I, I, it, it, Jesus talked about in Matthew 18, right? You got an issue, you go to that person privately, right? You don't throw it out on social media, you know? You, you, you don't gather a bunch of friends so you can form your own coalition so they'll feel the same way you feel about that person, right? I mean, people get out in the world. When they come to church, they should see something different, amen? They shouldn't see that stuff as part of the church. Here's some of the how-to one another's that we'll be looking at in the coming weeks. Love one another. John 13, 34. Be devoted to one another. Live in harmony with one another. Build up one another. Accept one another admonish one another. That can be hard to do, right? You know, to admonish one another. I mean, because sometimes, do you ever do things, you ever mess up and need a brother or sister to say, yo, that's messed up. You shouldn't have, act that way. You shouldn't do that. You should not have that attitude. You know, it, you know um, it may be hard to do, but we need to do it. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, I say we stick with handshakes, right? You know, let's not do the kissing thing, all right? Um, care for one another. 
Serve one another, forgive one another, comfort one another, pray for one another, confess your sins to one another. And here's the deal. Doing those things will not only make us one, but it will also help us become more like Jesus. Jesus said in Romans 12, 1, um, Paul said, uh, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. And in the verses that follow, in 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 that very same chapter, Paul makes it clear that this transformation happens not only through a vertical relationship, but also through a horizontal relationship with other people. He says in Romans 12, 5, in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to one another. He says in Romans 12, 10, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves. You see, it's all about relationships, which makes sense, right? If we're, if we're to be a growing gathering of people, then relationships are central because that is where transformation and new person takes place and how God and how the good news gets out and the kingdom expands with the Lord adding to our number daily. Jesus said, new command, I give you, love one another just as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, there's, there's actually two Greek words for the, for the word new. One word is neos, which means new in time, latest model, most recent. You know, I bought a new car. The other is kainos, which means new in form, new in quality, different in nature, something fresh and unique. And Jesus uses the word kainos because he says, hey, a new command, it's, it, it's fresh, it's new in quality, it's different in nature. It's new because now you have an example of what it looks like. And, and how can messed up people like us actually live that way, love that way, because we have a new power in us. We have the Holy Spirit in us. Nine times in the New Testament, we are commanded to love one another. And listen, one of the ways to do that practically is by embracing and living out these one another commands. And Jesus says, by this and this alone, not by how we worship, not by the buildings we sit in, not even by the good news that we share, by this, people will know that we are his disciples. Bottom line, it's all about one another, one another. Because the hallmark and power of the Jesus gathering is how we get along with one another. Amen? And anybody think we could do better? Anybody think we could do better as a church, as a people? Can you do better at this? I think we all can. And here's the deal. Um, Some people describe it this way. That this relationship transformation, right, is, is not just, it's not just going to happen as we sit in rows. I mean, sitting in rows is important, right? You know, but, but you also need to sit in circles. You know, you need to be involved with other believers who can encourage you, who can challenge you, right? I mean, because right now, like we're, you know, teach one another, right? But there's not a whole lot of one another going on right now. You're listening to this guy with the cold try to uh, get through his message, right? You know, um, but real transformation happens when we're in circles in relationship with other people, right? Where you're learning how to love one another, how to be devoted to one another, right? How to carry one another's burdens, right? It happens in close relationships and in small groups where we're encouraged to live out our relationships in a different way. It's like, hey, 
I, I know you used to do relationships this way, but you're in the family of God now, and we do relationships differently. Like in the family of God, we do not just get mad and run away. No, in this family, we stick around and we fight through in order to restore things and make them better and make them more God-honoring, right? It's different, right? We do it differently. And, 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 and let's be honest, COVID has wreaked havoc on the church having community, right? I mean, first, we couldn't even be in the same room together. And then we were giving the same room together, but we, had, we couldn't get close to each other, right? We had to wear masks, and we couldn't see each other's faces. And, 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 and it kept us separated, you know? And, and life groups, small groups are important, right? And, and you know, we have some meeting now, but in January, you know, we really want to kick them off and do them better, Right? There are certain things, when they don't work, you toss them out, right? Oh, you know what? That doesn't work. We don't need to do that in church anymore, right? But doing life together, we can't toss out. <laughs> that can't be thrown out, right? Because that's the gist of it, right? It's us being in community, helping each other, right? Places where we can love and be loved, know and be known, serve and be served, right? We need those types of community, right? And so I want you to pray about it. If you're not in a life group or in some small group with other believers, I encourage you to do that, Right? It's so important, and we are going to do a better job because we have no option, right? We want to answer that desperate prayer of Jesus. And again, what I'm trying to say is that Jesus' dream for the church was so much bigger than you and I sitting in a church service for one hour a week. It was to create a new community, a new family, where people love each other in radical, Jesus-like kind of ways, in ways that get the intention of the watching world like it did in early church. A bold prediction, I will build my church, a desperate prayer. May they be one as we are one. The primary activity, the one another, one another. And so the question I want to ask as we close is this. You know, are, are you ready to learn and to step up your game in regards to one anothering, one another? And, and listen, and if we do this, right? Like, if, if we actually do this, not only will we show the world, right, that we're his disciples, it'll be a whole lot more awesomer to be in this building, right? You know, it's going to be a whole lot more fun to be here, right? And we're going to want to be here. I mean, it's going to be awesome. God's awesome sauce will be flowing all over this place, right? It'll be incredible, right? And we're like, hey, I want to go to church because I know if I go to church, I'm going to be encouraged. I'm going to be lifted up, right? I'm going to be challenged, right? I'm going to be built up, right? And so, um, next week, we're going to continue, right? This is about a four or five week series. I, I really want to encourage, thank you guys for bearing with me because my mind, I don't know if I said anything that makes sense today. My, my head is echoing. You know, when I, like when I was singing today, like I can kid myself like I sing good, but when your ears are clogged, you can hear yourself really well. And so if you didn't hear me singing loud today, it's because I could really hear myself today. And it was scaring me. It was pretty, it was pretty terrible. Uh, but anyhow, uh, but I did sing in the shower, you know, because I always did. You know, I got my coffee and I got my music blaring. But uh, I, that, sorry, I shouldn't have even gone there. Uh, a bold prediction. <laughs> I'm mess, I love you guys. And we can do better, right? And, and, and let, let, church is about people. And sometimes, if we're honest, we're not always that happy with people. <laughs> but church is the people business, right? And then... And, and and we focus on each other and loving each other, if that's our primary concern, everything else will take care of itself, right? 
It's not about building better programs. It's about building people. And that's what the kingdom of God is all about. If you guys would stand, we're going to prepare for communion. Every week we do communion to remember the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for allowing us to be in this family. Jesus, thank you for praying for us in the garden. Um, thinking about us, praying for this oneness. Thank you for creating the church, creating a gathering where we can be loved and accepted and encouraged and built up, Lord. And where people can come alongside of us and where we don't have to carry our burdens alone. And Father, I pray that in the coming weeks, each of us will look at our own individual lives and how we relate to each other and that the person that we can change is ourselves. And God, help us to really be committed to one another, one another, so the world will know that we are your disciples. And Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the forgiveness of our sins and new life that is ours because of it. In Jesus' name. Amen.